And growing up, we learn that magic is not real, and we live our lives finding no proof to the contrary. It is not our fault that we're so wrong, for only those who can use it can truly see it. Since time immemorial, the secrets of Arcana have been protected by ninja, passed down from generation to generation in martial forms that must be mastered with body and mind. With these techniques, the ninja protects the world from evil and fathomable, horrifying monsters and other ninja gone mad with power. All of which we, the non-magical, the unsparked, will never know about. Welcome to the Arcane Ninja World. Rosalind Kirada Cedra as Carmen Ninja. Patience breeds satisfaction. Jonas McLean as Tony Pugs. It's not how big you are, it's about how fast you're going. Colin Bruce Anthes as Absentia Moonshine. I am a perfectly rational, non-superstitious, eternal spirit of death. And Ferry Holton as your humble storyteller. This podcast is produced by 48vmedia.com. When hearing the word ninja, you may immediately evoke the image of a highly skilled martial arts assassin, clad in black from head to toe and known for their devious and extremely effective tactics. Even though this depiction finds echo in the realities of the ninja world, it is but the smallest expression of a much larger truth. For the ninja's extreme training in the martial arts has a different, higher purpose than simple sneaking and base murder. Some unique people are born with the innate ability to use their life force, known as ki or chi, to access arcane energy, a peculiar force that lets them manipulate the very threats of reality. Without proper training, those who possess this ability never know what will stir their chi next or to what terrible effect. The sparking as ninjas call it, refers to the moment this rare ability manifests, usually triggered by a strong emotional response at the onset of puberty. Those who experience it are referred to as sparked. In every country in the world, ninja academies are ever alert to these events, so as to bring new prospects to safety as soon as their sparking takes place, as their training must begin at once. The arts of ninjutsu have been developed over centuries specifically to control this power. This is their true purpose. Human beings are closer to madness than they know. Should a normal person come in contact with the truly precarious perch that humankind has on its existence, they would lose their minds. An unconscious protection mechanism that acts somewhat like a fuse intervenes as soon as they encounter anything to do with this strange energy. It manipulates the information coming through their senses so that they fail to notice anything out of the ordinary. A halfling is perceived as a small person, an elf as a lanky and sometimes sickly individual, an orc as a bodybuilder, a monstrous deity of destruction as some kind of wild, natural phenomena. They are simply incapable of seeing anything related to the arcane. Throughout history, obscure ninjutsu techniques have been used to summon creatures from different universes to do the bidding of those who call them forth. For different reasons, many of those creatures remained and made their home here with us. 
Some solitary and predatory in nature lurk in impossible locations, in wait. Others, of a more social inclination but preferring the privacy of remoteness, assembled into hidden communities or villages in hard-to-access places. Yet others established into small communities in large human cities. Episode 1. Those who spark. The Shire is one such community, located in Toronto at the edge of Kessington Market. It is a cluster of halflings whose forefathers had been summoned in Italy and who had found their way to the New World. To a non-sparked individual, it would be difficult to distinguish it from Little Italy. Should they be very perspicacious, they would notice the particularly high number of tiny children constantly buzzing the streets, many seeming perfectly happy to go barefoot. They may also notice that in this nook of what seems to be Little Italy, people are a bit smaller than elsewhere. The joviality in the air makes it feel as if a party was about to spontaneously break out at any second. It is the end of a Friday and small children pour out of the front doors of the Winston Churchill Primary School, where all the kids who live in the Shire attend. A halfling boy of around 11, with short curly brown hair, hazel green eyes, well-worn clothes and the unmistakable look of a troublemaker is among the crowd of kids spilling into the street. His name is Tony Pugs, but it was customary in the Shire to get a proper nickname. His third cousin Lou coined the Pug a few years back and it stuck. That's how anyone knows him now, Tony the Pug. And it is a fine name as far as he's concerned. As he is walking out through the doors, his cousin Benny the Feet runs up from behind. Of similar height, a bit on the heavy side, black and tidy hair, olive skin, unibrowed, missing two teeth to his smile and a perpetual mud stain somewhere on his face. His clothes were similar to Tony's. Everything the kids wore had been worn by several generations of cousins before them. Hey, hey, Tony, Tony. Hold up, hold up. Hey, come on, we gotta get going. I know, I know, but you, did you see Aurora? She she brought the side. She brought Uncle Lou's side to school. I think she was trying to show off. Well, yeah, she's trying to show off. Everyone's trying to show off. I ain't impressed. I, well, I know, I know, but but the mistress, she got them. The headmistress, she she what? confiscated the side. Whoa, whoa, Benny, Benny, slow down. Yeah, I'm telling what are you, you. What are you saying? You're saying it's confiscated? Yeah, yeah, and you know, she she never returns that shit. I, I think she gives the stuff to her kids. I don't know what she does, but if we don't get the side back, Aurora's going to be in fucking big trouble. You know how Uncle Lou gets when she screws up. we got to help yeah, her. You don't got to tell me about Uncle Lou. Look. Okay, okay, here's what we're gonna do, right? We're gonna go get it ourselves. And Aurora's gonna be, she's gonna be real thankful that we got it back for her, but we gotta go fast, you hear me? I know, I know, that's what I was thinking. Well, why didn't you bring this to my attention sooner? Jesus, Benny! Well, we have to wait till the end of the day. Now, well, it's the fucking end of the day, Benny. We've been at the end of the day for two minutes. You coming to me with this now? Why do I even bother with you? Come on, keep up! Well, what I think is we should go up to the roof and then crawl down the water chute and the window to the office of the headmistress is right there. And you've been watching too much Mission Impossible. Well, what are we going to do? How do you want to get in? What, you don't want to just, like, you know, sneak around like we did last time? Without, like, well, go through I'm the bushes. Saying, well, 
right now. You want to go over a roof? Well, yeah. I mean, it's just a little small climb down. We do that all the time at martial arts. Yeah, but at martial arts, we got, like, the big mats and stuff underneath, and Sensei's there to catch us. I know, but Tony, he's training us for the real thing. And this is the real thing. We That's gotta true. go up and go down, and we're gonna get in. That's true, Benny. This is as real as it's ever gonna get. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm gonna go first. Uh, just, uh, just make sure, make sure no teachers are around, okay? Well, I'll, I'll be, I'll be the whistle. I'll just be watching. You just go up. And so the two children make their way up to the top of the school. They, they go all the way up onto the roof. It's a flat roof. And they make their way to the water chute that goes down and goes right by the window of the headmistress. And Tony, going down first, he uses his uh, dexterity, every ounce he can muster, to climb, climb down the chute to the window. So do a dexterity roll. It'd be whatever the dexterity number is, how many dice you roll. Okay. Well, Tony has a dexterity of five. And today... That dexterity is serving him well. That is four successes. Tony reaches the edge of the roof, and so smoothly he just jumps onto the chute and starts making his way down toward the window, and before he knows, he's uh, stepping on the ledge of the window, and Benny is coming down the chute after him. And... Both is as if they were born to do this. They just slide down that chute and into the uh, office of the headmistress. The window was unlocked and they're able to just slide right in. Um, And they do another dexterity check to ensure that they're not overheard. Three. Silent as cats or perhaps as silent hobbits. They make their way (laughs) into the office. Or halflings. They make their way into the office. We're going to get sued, Betty. Keep it down. Keep it down, Tony. Look, this is going so well, right? Who needs Ninja Academy? We run the streets here. This was so easy. I know, I know. We just, uh, we're going to do real well. We're going to do real... Look, look, there's there's this high on the desk. Oh, my God, she's just got it sitting out. Uh, okay. She probably didn't even think we're going to get in through the window on the second floor, but, you know. Nobody expects Tony and Benny to make it in through the window. Okay. They just don't know what's coming. You know, we could do some serious damage in here. What you thinking? Well, I'm just saying, you know, Mistress is always confiscating so many yo-yos and ninja stars and... Flaming scooters, what we make by tying rockets to regular scooters. And, uh, you know, I just think maybe it's time for a little bit of payback. Well, let's just take it all. Uh, yeah, okay, start stuffing your pockets. A whole lot, all right, okay. I'm gonna start a fire on a desk. (laughs) And they make another dexterity check to go unheard. That's a one. Seven and above is a success. Seven and above is a success, right? Yeah. Yeah, so one success. 
So as Tony and Benny are stuffing their There's some their sort of pockets, horse outside. Um, <laughs> Tony drops one of the uh, things that they're grabbing, uh, one of the saw, in fact, and it clangs and bongs down onto the ground, and immediately they hear from uh, outside. Hey, what was that sound coming from your office, Mistress Georgina? And it's just an instant. A moment later, Headmistress Georgina walks in, a tank of a woman, almost as tall and wide as the doorframe. Hands the size of hams, fingers like German sausages, hair pulled tight in a knot held in place on top of her head by a long, sharp-looking metal needle. Her brown eyes are piercing and her nostrils flare as she sees Tony and Benny sigh in hand. It takes one heartbeat, and Benny books it back toward the window. Run! Mistress Georgina, you're looking well. Uh, we were just going. <laughs> now you hold right there. Have you done something different with your hair? It looks more stern than usual. Benny, wait for me. <laughs> and uh, Tony rolls his dexterity once more to try and get out of there as fast as he can. Benny, get your butt out of the window. Three. Benny's clangering and go climbing out of the window, trying to reach the water chute to climb back up onto the roof, but he's moving too fast and too clumsy. And Tony, who's extremely in his domain, kind of pushes him along to try and help him, help him through. Come on, move your big feet! However, unfortunately, Benny loses his grip and falls off the window to the ground. Benny, give me your hand! It only takes a moment for Tony to look down because he needs to get away, but what he does see is that uh, Benny manages to do a proper breakfall and, and land on the ground. And then he just stares up and, and kind of starts backing away. But Tony makes his way uh, up the chute and to, toward the roof. The headmistress tried to grab hold of him as he was climbing out of the window, but doesn't manage to do that and she leans out of the window, looking up, and yells, Quickly, to the roof! Colin, we have them trapped! Benny, meet at the safe house! Oh, jeez. <laughs> Tony reaches the roof uh, and climbs onto it, but not a moment later, Headmistress Georgina emerges onto the roof, followed closely by lanky Colin. And Tony recedes slowly until he's at the very edge of the roof, caught between an irate giantess coming his way and a 60-foot drop. And he hears Benny down from the ground. Tony! You gotta jump, Tony! Benny, I never knew you had such uh, feelings out to get me. You know, you don't inherit my, uh, my trading card collection if I die. Well, we don't have an option. He's going to catch you, and we're going to save the Psy. Just jump. You can do it. It's just like in practice, like Sensei Elsorch says. Land on your forearms, forearms, not your wrists. I'm going to land on this Psy if I jump. Here, I'll toss you the blade. Arrgh. Got it. That was an amazing catch. Uh, I know. My reflexes are super sharp. <laughs> you didn't even have to roll. Oh, God, lanky Collins here. Uh, 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 uh. 
As Tony falls, he readies himself in the position for a front breakfall. But then something strange happens. It's as if time slows down. He sees everything in slow motion. He is suddenly assaulted by a new awareness. The smell of earth, the taste of metal, the rush of water in his ears, the feeling of wood in his fingertips and the sight, and his sight blinded by the sun. The sun, immense, a primordial fire burning, giving out its comforting heat, its flames stoked by yet to be understood cosmic winds, winds that could be tamed and ridden, winds that would carry one away in their warmth. Tony emerges from his reverie with a start. He is high in the air and gets a glimpse of the school building he just jumped from. But it's wrong. It's so far away. <laughs> the feeling of being hugged by a warm breeze abandons him and he falls once more, but only briefly, as he lands hard on the maintenance platform of an antenna built on the top on the rooftop of the 30-story condo tower across from the school. <laughs> the sheer height alone makes Tony freeze. Well, this is new. Uh, good thing I wasn't holding the sigh anymore. He had waited in anticipation for his sparking, and he knew it was, that if it was coming, it would not be long because his cousin Ice Pick had it two weeks back, and they were about the same age. Well, uh, I'm gonna have to figure out what I tell everyone else later, because uh, this story could have stood to be a bit more heroic. But I'm a goddamn ninja now, so time to find my way out of this situation. So he was sparked, after all, but now caught hundreds of feet off the ground in a platform just big enough to fit him sitting down. The metal rungs descending away from the platform were more than intimidating and it was some time before he built up the courage to start making his way down as it became apparent that help was not coming. The sun was slow in the horizon when he finally decided to start his descent uh, and as he climbed off the platform and onto the first metal rung he noticed the shadow, his shadow stretching the length of the small platform in front of him. He lost his grip entirely as he saw, first in astonishment, then in fleeting terror, a person emerge from his shadow. A firm grasp caught him by the one wrist and pulled him back onto the small platform, now crowded. The person was a female ninja. Only her eyes were visible, onyx black, long eyelashes and slightly heavy black eyebrows. You good, kid? Who the hell are you? What the hell is going on? Well, my name is Tamara, and I am a ninja from the Cable Academy, and you just had your sparking. Congratulations, kid. Yeah, no shit, toots. How, wh how do I get out of here? Why'd it take you guys so long to send the welcome committee? Well, uh, I need the shadows to move, and the sun was too high up, and there's no shadows here, so I had to wait until you started going down, and there was a shadow created for me to get in. It's complicated, That kid. seems very technical. Okay, I apologize for going through my pubescent trauma at such an inopportune time of day for you, your shadowness. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you see it that way, and uh, that was a good sparking as these things go. Nobody died, and... Uh, 
you know, everything is okay. So I did like to not die in pot. Yeah, that was pretty cool, yeah. wasn't it? So you have fire like your mom, huh? Nice. Yeah, top five sparklings you've ever seen, I bet. Uh, well, makes sense, I suppose. But they're going to be very proud when they hear that their kid is going to the academy. Yeah, yeah, maybe that'll, um... That can be the main news and not the detention I'm probably going to have. Do they do detention at Claybelt? Oh, they do detention on Claybelt. Oh. Old school detention. The good kind. Oh, boy. You have any questions? Several thousand. Um, but let's start with... Can you get me down using the shadows? Yeah, yeah. You wanna... You, would you like a hand going down or you got it? Um, no, I, I got it. But if you wanna, you know, maybe expedite the process a little bit, I, I would allow for that. And I could maybe use a juice box. <laughs> the ninja uh, nods and takes a stance and does the precise movements of a jutsu. And immediately, her and uh, Tony enter the Shadow Realm. This is the first time Tony ever uh, does this or is taken through the Shadow Realm. And the whole world becomes black and white and grays and immersed in shadow. It only lasts a moment and they emerge back out in front of Tony's, of, of Tony's house, of Tony's grandmother's house. Um, and she gives Tony a juice box. There you go, kid. Uh, th go thanks. back inside and uh, we'll arrange everything for you to go to Claybolt, okay? Not soon enough. Thanks very much. Hmm. Orange. As uh, Tony ent enters his grandma's house, he realizes that all the Shire kids are there. And they welcome him in an explosion of, of applause and yells of success, uh, all celebrating because then he told them, each and every one, that Tony had his sparking. Yes, it's true. I must have gone 2,000 feet up. You should have been there. And I met a shadow ninja. No, really? Wow. Yeah, wow. she said it was top three sparking event she'd ever seen. <laughs> Tony's so cool. Yeah, he's so cool. Yes, yes I am. In another part of the world, it is the evening of the arrival of the Blood Moon, and it is Absentia Moonshine's 39th birthday. Tradition in the resting feline hidden village, a small tight-knit community of dark elves, dictates that the ritual of sparking be conducted at this point in the life of an individual. And the members of the resting feline clan are nothing if not traditional. The entire village was heavily regimented, structured after the hierarchy of martial devotion. Parents taught their children the art of shadow cat combat, and the village trained together in daily routines. They had settled in the depths of the ice sheets of northern Iceland. Their home, a succession of sharp angled hallways and chambers, were carved with uncanny precision. The sharp edges, present in every passageway and room, were softened by over-intricate filigree decorating walls and floors alike. Absentees kneeling by themselves in the training chamber in meditation for the ritual. They wear the traditional ritual dress, a blood-red fitted loincloth that stands in stark contrast with their white, almost transparent skin. Normally, thick white hair on their chest, arms, legs and face would impede the sight of the dark veins that ran under the skin 
but with their body entirely shaved, as prescribed for the ritual, Abby's blood vessels and organs eerily insinuate themselves through their skin. Their pointed, obsidian black teeth hide behind dark purple lips. Their similar colored nails stand out as the hands rest on their pigmentless thighs. The red irises, almost the same color as the loincloth they wear, are especially prominent as the pupils are severely contracted. The effects of the ritual potion they drank moments ago starting to take effect. They can feel their heart racing, a warmth surging through their body and a slight wooziness numbing their thought. It all had been explained and there seemed to be little room for surprises, but Abby found little comfort in that. What if all went wrong? What if they hurt themselves or worse, someone else? Their mother's voice brings them back to the moment. It is time, child. The community is assembled in the great hall. They're ready for you. She was so silent, Abby was never able to hear her come or go. It was impossible to guess her age, in spite of the waist-long, straight white hair which she wore in thin braids. Her red eyes shimmered with excitement, her own sparking ritual vivid in her mind as she saw her child readying themselves for their own. Like the rest of the village, she wore a comfortable khaki-fitted outfit made of sea lion leather and knee-high boots with no heels, designed to allow for the dexterous flowing movements of the shadow cat martial style. As if in cue, a faint sound of drumming began to fill the hallways. Abby feels their mother's hand on their shoulder. I am death. I am ready. Come on. To call the hall of resting feline hidden village great was a vast understatement. Perhaps grandiose or pulse-stopping majestic would have come close to it. A gargantum eye sculpture of a ferocious-looking feline leaping toward prey emerged from the south wall. Abby and their mom came out from a tunnel underneath it. The hall had a large central area that was clear of any obstacle, clearly a martial training pad. All paths led to and from it. Beyond the training pad, ice sculptures of small and large animals, humanoid creatures, trees and shrubs were scattered everywhere. A dull shine seemed to emanate out of them, and each one had some sort of container where mushrooms, herbs, and flowers grew. The north wall had an equally large carving as the pouncing cat in the south, but this one was of a resting cat. It seemed like it would open its eyes any second. A large pool of water was still as ice underneath it, its surface occasionally broken by the sea lions they raced for food. A slight fishy smell pervaded the air, but not in an unpleasant way. The sound of the drums coming from the near 200 people in the central area was deafening. They conveyed the excitement and celebration proper to the ritual of sparking for everything they did was proper. Abby followed their mom to the center of the gathered community, to the place they had left open. There, his mother stopped them with a gentle hand on their chest and turned away toward Abby's father, who held the ritual sword. 
an ice-laced katana made from a metal alloy from the ori original world, a one-of-a-kind. The drums increased in tempo and energy. Abby's mother was of a similar height to their father, though of, of a slightly slender build. She was the better sword person, though. She took the sword, bowing, and then presented it to the cardinal points, bowing each time. Each time, a surge of drumming and yelling replying from the crowd she faced. Then, she stood in front of Abby in a fighting stance. The drums shifted in sound, and the chanting began, melodies unearthly reverberating through the hall. The sea lions had emerged and were watching, unable to resist the pull of such perfect sound. The ice sculptures shone brighter. The leaping cat made a hissing sound, and the resting cat opened its eyes. Abby knew what came next and stood in the shadow cat fighting stance. Their mum nodded and then attacked. <laughs> Abby fights with four dice. They knew what to expect and they knew that their mom was fast as lightning but even then they weren't really prepared for the speed of the attack and nicks on both shoulders come their way yeah. Abby tries to react by putting his shoulder in and, and <gasps> attempting to throw his mom off guard and, and off balance, but they just fail miserably. And mom attacks once again with her sword, the pummel of a sword, smashing. Yeah, 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 every time you roll, every time there's attack, you roll. Nice. Uh, the pummel of their sword smashing against Abby's chest. <coughs> and Abby can see a smile on their mom's face. She's proud. She recognizes the movements and recognizes that this is the best of Abby's ability and she celebrates it by smiling but attacks again. And now the barrage of blows comes one after the other. Abby doesn't really have time to breathe, barely to avoid being murdered by this weapon coming at them in every possible way. There doesn't seem to, to be anything stopping uh, their mom. She simply keeps on barraging against to the point where Abby's bloodied body cut in every limb. It's, it's starting to bleed heavily and Abby stumbles back to the ground. Focus, discipline. The sword goes high up over Abby's mother's head and starts descending with fury, an unstoppable blow. This is the end. They will die. It was Abby's task to stop it, to do it, but she failed. Failure. They imagined the disappointment in their parents' eyes. Failure. The only member of the family without a spark. <sighs> failure. Would they be cast away? 
As the sword descends toward them, Abby realizes that they seem to have way too much time to think. Was the sword moving in slow motion? Was that the taste of metal? Why were they tasting metal? The sword was going to cut their body in half. They couldn't fail. They couldn't be the only unsparked in the family. With that, like attracted by a magnet, pieces of metal start to zoom toward Abby. Slow at first, but faster and faster. Ripped away from the pockets and hands of the surrounding crowd, they fly toward them. Time returns to normal as the sword makes contact with a shield of metal fragments that had gathered around Abby's forearms as they held them in front of them in a protective manner. The drumming and chanting have reached a peak and the sound was absolutely overpowering. The metal pieces fall to the ground inert. As Abby feels their senses return to normal, her mother was bowing as she returned the sword both her parents smiling. Their dad gave them one of the rare nods of approval. Abby had a moment to smile to themselves. And then the rumbling begins. Large chunks of ice fall from the ceiling, crushing people. Chaos ensues, yelling, being tugged one way and another, their father sending Abby and their mama ahead as they try to contain disaster with jutsu, the entire cave complex imploding, her mom performing one last jutsu to make Abby safe. They didn't realize that she was sacrificing her life to save Abby until it was too late. Eventually, a couple dozen survivors emerge to the surface. Are you okay, kid? What was that? I... That was completely... I don't know. I don't know what the fuck happened. What could have prompted that? We're gonna have to do some research and find out. This... This is the end. The end? This is the end of our... Of our village. I don't, I don't know how we can get over this. But we've been here for centuries. There is, there is no precedent for this moment. No, there isn't. This does not follow logically from the premises. We will have to inquire more. Come on. We have to make our way out of here. Where are we going? I guess we're going west. West? Yes. West. Go west? Yes. I'm sure that we will be able to find refuge in one of the hidden villages west of here in Canada. Is it peaceful there? Yes. In the open air? It is. Or so I hear. We'll go west. It wasn't until they were settled in Claybelt as refugees that Abby was able to understand what had happened. It was an oil drilling operation nearby. They had perforated into a tunnel that led straight to the caldera of a dormant underwater volcano, allowing for a massive influx of water. 
The following earth convulsions produced by steam and gases were an unstoppable foe, one that levied to nothing what was once the proud resting feline hidden village. Abby would strive to retain and develop the shadow cat fighting style of her family as they took a place at the Claybolt Ninja Academy. In yet another part of the world, back in Canada, Ontario, under the town of Pickering was under Pickering, a small community of Rhaegar. These dwarves came from a world where they had evolved to living life around the deep calderas of dormant volcanoes. After they had been summoned to our reality, the majority made their homes underground. Some had gone as far as to find dormant volcano calderas to recreate their original home, while others kept closer to the surface. One such group founded under Pickering, a couple of hundred years ago in the tunnel network of an abandoned dam project. It had not been directly under the town of Pickering then, but the human settlement grew over time and eventually it expanded to the land above the underground settlement. The underpickerinians had taken to human fashion and wore modified clothes that they acquired in the surface. The low hallways of underpickering are made of rock, chiseled out with a technique that is beyond human ability. Made to fit the low stature of the species, they only stand at about six feet tall with rounded ceilings. There is very dim bluish light throughout, provided by luminescent rough-cut rocks that protrude from the ceiling in regular intervals. The walls of the entire complex are carved with scenes of the history of the Rhaegar. They lead to several larger spaces in which rock barrows have been built. There is no mistaking them for anything but homes, as they all have wooden doors and chimneys that extend into the ceiling above, diverting the smoke and soot somewhere unseen. Carmenina attended school in the Green Gables Primary School of East Pickering. When she started school, she had been subject to taunts from the human children for her short stature and dirty-looking white skin. But it didn't take long for those taunts to stop as the young Rager girl unleashed her all-too-ready-to-blow temper on the perpetrators. They could never know that these dwarves' stockiness was sheer dense muscle, or that the dirty white skin was in fact rough, thick, leathery to the touch and white-grayish in pigmentation or that her white iris eyes, that looked irisless, were a common trait among her people. Today, she makes her way back from school toward her grandmother's rock burrow, the normal routine on any fourth day, as the Rager called Thursdays. The yelling alarmed her as she neared the burrow, and she stopped, in fear, before she crossed the front door. Her father had shown up again. Every time he did, every few months, him and her mom would fight viciously. Often furniture and other house furnishings were hurled around, sometimes sharper objects. He was determined to take Robertinho, Carmenina's older brother, by one year, away with him. He will be better with me, and you know it! He needs the influence of a male. You make him weak. Don't you dare say I make him weak! Here he has community, friends, teachers, and a home. What will you offer him? A tarp in some back-ass tunnel? I told you it's not like that. I have a place. It's a small community, but we are hard workers. Hard working at stealing and scamming. I know who you hang out with, Mikael. Thieves and worse. 
Don't you go calling my people names, you snake. I'm going to show you what you get when you insult my people. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to show you what you get when you try to show me. Stop this. Kamenina will be here soon. I say, stop. I'll stop when she lets me take my son. The sounds of violence erupt and Carmenina walks in to find all three tangled in a fight. Grandma holding Mikel back, Marguerite wrestling with her husband's hand as it grips her by the throat. She reaches to the side blindly and gets hold of a bolt made out of rock. She swings hard Mikel's head. He lets go of her with a growl of pain and touches his temple to find blood. Okay, now all stops are off. This is our last fight. He pulls out a long knife and he attempts to stab her. But she manages to stop the blow, Grandma holding onto his arm. If I just, if I just hide, if I just hide until it's over, if I just hide until it's over. The adults notice Notice Carmenina at the doorway. Leave, girl. Leave the adults deal with this. Go home, little one. I'll be there soon. Mama! Mikel, watch it! Marguerite manages to punch Mikel away, tripping him. He falls over Grandma, and she yells. Ah! He stands, noticing the blood on his blade. Grandma is on the ground. Papa, stop! Stop! And she stands a moment after, with difficulty, clutching her side. What more damage will you inflict on us before you leave, Mikel? Go! This is not over! Go! Go! We will we'll follow you. We'll come tonight. Robertinho and I will come tonight. Please just go, please. He leaves, partially shocked by the events. Are you okay, Mom? It'll take more than a stubborn fool to do away with me. I'll be fine. A poultrace and rest. I'll be good as new. Go now. Go get Robertinho before Miguel finds him. I'll be okay. Go. The two younger women leave in a race to get the boy before Mikel. It was in vain. Mikel managed to find Robertinho and take him away. They spent hours looking, but were not able to find him. Marguerite was Bobby, distraught. No. Oh. oh my God, he took him away. He took him away. He took him away. Mama, why do you still see him? Well, I don't see him. He shows up. You know how it is. You know he will show up if we stay here. So what are we going to do? We leave. We start again. Why do you make us put up with this? He's never going to stop. Go check on your grandmother. Help her out if she needs anything. I'll... I'll, I'll be here. Go. <laughs> She's as tough as a dragon. If there's anyone to worry about, it's not her. Well, 
Maybe she's not as tough as you think. She likes to put on a tough front. Okay. I'll see you home. I'll see you home. Carmeninha walks to her mother's, to grandmother's place, and enters the home to utter silence. Nothing has been moved since they left earlier. Broken furniture litters the floor. The rock bowl, still bloodied, lies on the ground. Carmeninha spies her grandmother on her bed in an alcove off the main living area. She's unmoving, probably sleeping. Hmm. I miss this. Just crawling into bed with you and taking a nap until all of this pain disappears and it's quiet. And we just wake up all warm and there's nothing to worry about. As Carmeninha is saying this, approaching the bed and starting to make her way into a cuddle, she notices the blood pooled under her grandma's bed. And she sees for the first time the nasty gash on her side. A poultress is half in place. Her eyes are still. The life has gone from them. In that moment, rage filled Carbonina's heart. All she could think was of punishing her father, of making him pay for taking away her grandma. I hate you! I hate you! I hate you! The smell of blood was sticking her nostrils. <gasps> the sound of her own blood flowing in her veins was suddenly all present. She could feel all the water nearby as if it was a part of her, a limb she just discovered. She willed the blood to return to her grandmother's body and to flow. Come back. Come back. The old woman's eyes flickered. Her body trembled. It sat up and eagerly turned its head, looking straight into Carmenina's eyes. With dead eyes. Carmeninha felt sick. Her awareness of water leaving her. The body of her grandmother falling back like a string puppet whose strings were cut. She retched again and again. All the time, one thought, and one thought only, was in her mind she would get revenge if it was the last thing she did. Robertinho and Mikel vanished. Marguerite suffered enormously to see her daughter spiral down into darkness. She found solace in alcohol and drugs, but she lost herself 
until she could feel nothing. Eventually she wrote to an old friend, a surface dwarf who now taught at Claybolt Academy, asking for help with Carmenina. And soon, the young Drugar found herself in the underwater dormitory complex of the Water Faction at the Claybolt Ninja Academy. Five years later, Abby, Tony, and Carmenina find themselves preparing for the graduation test the next day. And here's where we will leave our session today. Thank you for listening to our show. If you like what you're hearing, please like the podcast, share it with your friends, and if you can, leave us a five-star review. All this really helps starting podcasts like this one build an audience. Do you want your name to be an inspiration for an NPC character? Tweet about us using the hashtag at ArcaneNinjaRPG. You can also join our patron family at patreon.com slash ArcaneNinjaRPG. For as little as five bucks per month, you can help us continue to produce this show, get access to some extra content, and get a special thanks mention at the end of each episode. Thanks again. Stay tuned for the next episode release in two weeks. See ya!